So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging against the law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The minds governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, so uh, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the, God, the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus, and if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Thank you very much, Sam, uh, for reading for us. Um, lovely to keep that open. We're actually only going to look at uh, those four verses at the beginning of chapter 8, but I wanted you to, to hear the verses tucked in around uh, that section so that we would read them in that context. Um, if, if you've ever experienced um, problems with obsessive-compulsive disorder or know somebody um, who has, then... You will know just the, the tremendous and, and miserable experience of, uh, of uncertainty uh, that is created. Are, are you sure you, you turned off the gas? Did, did you really lock the front door? Uh, have you washed your hands so that they're, they're absolutely certain that they're clean? And with that level of uncertainty... Um, comes impossible to resist compulsions uh, to, to go back and, and check the gas tap, check the front door again and again and again until life almost at its worst grinds to a standstill because of these preoccupations 
these compulsions, uh, these fear of uncertainty and doubt? Well, the uncertainty that lies behind this section of Romans at the beginning of chapter 8 isn't obsessive, compulsive in nature. But, but actually, the uncertainty that sits here has an equally paralyzing impact upon the Christian life. Because the driving force for Christian living, the, the sort of the very engine room of living the Christian life well, actually rests on certainty rather than uncertainty. The, the certainty that you have a place in heaven. The certainty that your sins are completely, once and for all, forgiven. The certainty of a friendship with the Almighty Himself. But the trouble is, we, we very rarely think like that. In fact, we find it almost embarrassing when people do speak with such certainty of spiritual truths. Um, we think it seems rather presumptuous to to, to think and talk like that. And, and wouldn't it be better for us to speak in rather more humble terms? Uh, I, I hope I can call myself a Christian. I do my best to live a life that is pleasing to him. I hope that in the end, God will count me worthy of a place with him. It all sounds much humbler, doesn't it? No presumption, a sort of a an acknowledgement of, of, of hopes and, and perhapses. But actually, it's not gospel believing. And it means switching off. It, thinking like that means kind of switching off the engine that drives the Christian life. Well, as we explore this, let me remind you where we are in this letter uh, to the Christians in Rome. Paul has spent many chapters at the beginning of the letter setting out in detailed terms what this gospel is, how it is that in Christ God has provided a righteousness for us that comes to us entirely as a gift, just as his free gift of grace to us, not something that we earn, not something that we deserve, but just his free gift. He credits us with righteousness. It's as if it arrives in our, in our bank account, like a, like a sort of a gift, a deposit. It's not our salary coming in at the end of the month uh, that we have earned. No, it, it arrives credited to us as righteousness, as his free gift to us. But a gospel like that raises all sorts of questions, and we've been seeing that as we've gone through these middle chapters of Romans. To those on the outside, it just looks doesn't look safe. How could you possibly say that you can get into heaven no matter what you do? If you tell people that, then they'll do whatever they like, won't they? And that was the puzzle in chapter 6 that Paul addressed there. But, but now we're moving into the territory where the puzzles come more from believers, from people who are saying, oh, do you know... It doesn't feel as good as you're making it out. Because you're telling me about this great victory over, over sin and death. Well, as far as I can see, I keep on sinning. It doesn't seem to be much victory in my life. In fact, if anything, since I became a Christian, the battle with sin seems harder than it ever did. 
And that's the puzzle that Paul was addressing last week in chapter 7. But as we move into chapter 8, the the question shifts slightly. Um, uh, With, if this gospel is really as good as you say it is, then how come I still suffer? How come life still seems so hard? And and despite all these promises of victory over uh, sin and death and judgment, well, as far as I can see, death goes on just the same. I'm decaying and heading towards mortal death just like I ever did. Are you sure this gospel is working? Can we just check and make sure? And to those sorts of puzzles, to to that sort of uncertainty, uh, chapter 8 provides Paul's answer. And it is just like one long declaration of the reasons why it is possible to be absolutely sure, absolutely confident as a Christian believer. Yes, it is working. Yes, it can be trusted. Yes, it is every bit as gloriously good as you've been told. And at the risk of giving the game away, um, because we are going to slow right down on these chapters, we're going to spend nine weeks on chapter eight, um, because it's such a a key chapter. Uh, And at the risk of giving the game away, um, let me show you where Paul lands. Because he lands, as it were, by saying, Christian believer, understand that what God has done for you is so radical so gloriously good, so uncompromisingly wonderful, that, verse 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to be sure? You can be sure. Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing can get between you and the love that God has for you. Paul spends a whole chapter developing his argument of this certainty, this confidence that it's possible to have as a Christian believer. And then as you get to the end of the chapter, it's as if the, 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 the dam bursts and he can't contain himself and outpours this declaration of certainty. Nothing. And separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But as well as ending in, in glorious certainty, actually the chapter begins with certainty as well. Do you see that? Verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's, let's look at the opening to the chapter. I'm going to do it under these three headings. Uh, We're going to see how in Christ assurance is possible, how in Christ sin is condemned, and how in Christ we therefore live according to the Spirit. So first, in Christ assurance is possible. This opening to the chapter couldn't be stronger. Literally, it reads, No, therefore, now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, therefore, condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But we are much more likely to say, no, therefore, now condemnation for those who come to church regularly. No, therefore, condemnation now for those who do read their Bibles regularly. No, therefore, condemnation now for those who keep the commandments. For those who sincerely acknowledge the wrong things they do and properly repent of their sins. Because although in theory we may say to ourselves that the gospel just comes to us as this free gift, that that it is just God's grace to us, that means that we're saved. In practice, it's all too often the case that, that we think it really depends upon us coming up to some sort of measure. Oh, maybe we begin with grace. You know, God gets us going with his glorious grace. That gets us in. But from then on, my journey on, oh no, that's, that's about me. My energy, my effort, my performance. At first, I'm, I'm clear and happy to know that I'm loved by God simply because Jesus died for me. But pretty soon all that changes. And now I begin to be sure and confident that I'm loved by God because I've said my prayers. Because I resisted that sin. Because I kept my promise. That's how I know I'm in God's good books. So we have a good day and a bad day. And a good day is when I've done all the right things. And I've measured up to to all sorts of standards that I've set for myself. And I think God must be really pleased with me. And then we have a bad day. And I've made all sorts of mistakes and I've missed out on all sorts of things. And I think, oh, now God doesn't love me. And when we're thinking like that, we are thinking that something can separate us from the love of God. That it is about my performance and not about God's grace. You know that moment when you're driving on the motorway and a police car comes alongside. And instantly, your foot comes off the accelerator. I mean, you haven't even looked at the speedometer. You just have this presumption that you're probably doing something wrong, and you probably ought to slow down. And then mentally, you're replaying the last five minutes of driving, trying to think of all the things that you did during those five minutes that you know you are almost certainly going to be in trouble for. There is just this presumption of guilt and presumption that I'm in trouble and presumption that the police are going to get me. And my only hope is that there is a there is a bigger traffic offender somewhere further on down the motorway who the police car is going to roar off after. That's that's the only way I'll escape. We do something similar with God. We have this sort of automatic presumption that I'm in trouble with him. In other words, we don't believe that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You remember that imagery from a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was trying to to say a little bit about about what it means because there's a key phrase there, isn't it? There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to try and catch what that meant, I said, you know, it's a little bit like this. I I take a pencil and I put it in the Bible. And now the, the pencil is in the Bible. And now, whatever happens to the Bible, Bible goes up, the pencil goes up. Bible goes left, the pencil goes left. Because the pencil is in the Bible. 
Well, in a similar kind of way, um, we're seeing here the, the outworkings of what it means to say that a person is in Christ Jesus. Whatever happens to Jesus now happens to you if you are in Christ Jesus. That's why it is possible to be confident because it's not about what I do. It's not as if you know the, the pencil's got to go off and do stuff on its own. Then it would depend upon the pencil. But the pencil is in the Bible. So it's not about what the pencil does, it's about what the Bible does. And in the same, same way, because you're a Christian in Jesus, it isn't about what you do, it's about what he has done. Do you see that? That's why it is possible to be confident, because it's not about my performance. It's not about my activity at all. The gospel promises are all about what he has done for me and how I am caught up in that in him. Well, what exactly has happened? What exactly has Jesus done? Well, come to the second heading. In Christ, sin is condemned. The argument is tightly worded. You probably noticed that um, as Sam was reading it. Um, so, so let me read it again, um, and uh, we'll have a go at trying to understand it as clearly as we can. Okay? Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Paul, as it were, is, is mapping out. He's, he's saying look, there, there are sort of two routes here, two possibilities, two ways of getting right with God. Route one is through obedience to the law. Route two depends on receiving the Spirit in this gospel message. But although, in theory, there are these two possible routes, in reality, only one of them works. Because while, in theory, the law could provide you with a template that enabled you to live the perfect life that would get you right with God, in practice, it just won't work. Why? Because, verse 3, the law is powerless to do it. Because it was weakened by the flesh. The law was powerless to do it because it was weakened by the flesh. Here is the sheet music for Mozart's piano sonata in D major. There are all the little dots. Now, in theory, this Sheet music is capable of producing beautiful music. Over here is a piano. And in theory, this sheet music and this piano can combine to produce the most glorious piano sonata. But it's not going to. Because it is weakened by the inability of these fingers. In fact, by this whole non-musical body. 
And no matter what I do, no matter how much effort I throw into, into practicing my scales uh, and learning musical theory, this perfectly sufficient sheet music is never going to produce beautiful music because it is made unable to do so by these unmusical fingers. Well, in a similar way, do you see that Paul is saying the law could do it, but it can't do it. Not because you're not musical, but because of the sinful flesh. You can't keep his law perfectly. You don't have the capacity to do it. So route one, obedience to the law, will never get you right with God. That way only lies condemnation. But now see what God has done instead. Middle of verse 3. He has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Jesus turns up and he can play the sonata. He can keep the law. He can do it perfectly. He can do it. None of us ever could. Because God has sent him in the likeness of sinful man. Now, catch that phrase. Understand what it does and doesn't mean. Jesus has come in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't just appear to be human. He really was human. He really was fully man. But it was the likeness of sinful flesh because although he was fully man... He was not sinful. His flesh was of a different sort of flesh in as much as that he was the only one without sin. Which meant that he was, as a human being, able to do what we should have done, but are not capable of doing. He kept the law perfectly. He lived the perfectly righteous life. So God gazes down from heaven and everything that God wants a human being to do, Jesus did. In every way, his life was perfect. Every word he spoke, every action he took, every thought he had, perfectly in line with what God wanted. Playing every note in the sonata to perfection. And yet, despite that, he ended up dying. Because, at the end of verse 3, God condemned the sin in the flesh. And so, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law could be fully met in us. Even though Jesus had lived the perfect life, he still ended up suffering the punishment for sin. So that if we are in Jesus, we have died on the cross to sin. Our sin has been punished because it was punished in him. He died the death that we should have died. Now, how how can I try and catch this? I mean, illustration is always silly at this point, but imagine there I am, approaching the gates of heaven. And and I'm moving up towards the gates, and a man steps in front and says, why should you be allowed into God's holy heaven? And I pause for a moment and I say, well, I've got this certificate. And I pull it out of my back pocket and I say, look. And the man on the gate reads and he says, this is to certify that Steve Midgley has had every one of his sins forgiven. 
And he says, that's amazing, because I know just how many there are. And I say, you're right. There are a lot of them. But he says, but this certificate says every single one has been forgiven. And I say, it does. And I say, and that's not all. I've got another certificate. And he says, another one? And I get out of another certificate, and I give it to him. And he reads it, and he says, this is to certify that Steve Midgley has kept every one of God's laws perfectly. And he says, this is ridiculous. And I says, I know. He says, where did you get these certificates? And I say, Jesus gave them to me. Do you see, being in Christ puts you in possession of those certificates. Everything you've ever done wrong has been paid for on the cross. Everything you ever will do wrong has been paid for on the cross. It's done. They are forgiven. And more than that, a righteous life is credited to you so that you belong in heaven. You're not there kind of inappropriately, you know, we'll pretend. No, 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 you're there by right. By the right that God has given you by Jesus taking your place, by Jesus living the perfect life. And it's all yours just by believing it. So finally, if we've seen that in Christ, assurance is possible because it's not dependent on me. There's nothing arrogant about saying I'm sure. Because I'm saying that my assurance comes from what Jesus has done. And then secondly, Assurance is possible because in Christ, sin is condemned. It's been done. Then see finally that in Christ, we therefore live according to the Spirit. This chapter, chapter 8, that we're going to spend these nine weeks in, is one of the great places in the Bible to to go to, to, to understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit, to understand who he is and what he does. Uh, We're going to spend lots of time hearing uh, what the Holy Spirit does for us, what the Holy Spirit means when he comes into a person's life. In in chapter 7, the law gets mentioned 30 times, and the Holy Spirit just gets mentioned once. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 14 times in, in the first 17 verses alone. It tells us that we are discovering what it is that to be a person indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what it is that the Holy Spirit is about in a Christian believer's life. So just as a little trailer of that, um, a little taster of what's to come, will you notice that according to verse 5, to live according to the Spirit means that we don't have our minds set on what the flesh desires, but on what the Spirit desires for us. Do you see that? It's a big shift, isn't it? The Spirit changes what we want. The Spirit changes our set of desires. And and what we're seeing here is that justification by faith, because that's what point two was all about, justification by faith is the engine room, is the driver for the transformation of a Christian believer. Justification by faith isn't 
I mean, that's why my illustration probably was not a good illustration. It's not like a a sort of insurance policy that you pop in your bottom drawer and leave it there until one day you need it. So it's a bad illustration in that way. Because that's not what justification by faith is. No, it's not something we tuck away. No, it's more like the, the, the engine that drives the entire Christian life. It does change you, this gospel. It can't help but do so. Because something so radical something so far-reaching, something so divine, has a power like nothing else. Can you imagine for a minute how different your week to come would be if, if this week you really believed this gospel? I mean, you know, deep down believed it. Were really utterly persuaded that your standing with God is perfect that there is no guilt in your life when it comes to God. If if you were absolutely sure that a moment will never come when God says, do you know, enough. Okay, I've forgiven you that sin 833 times and that's just in this current week. I'm not doing it for the 834th time. Finished. I've had it with you. God will never say that. Those, those, Those words will never come. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It can't happen. And if we really believe that that was the case, then we would finally be free. See, we find so many ways to measure ourselves. And we will do this coming week. You'll measure yourself by your performance at work. You'll measure yourself by the the quality of your friendships. You'll measure yourself by the presence or absence of a romantic partner. You'll measure yourself by the quality of your parenting. You'll measure yourself by the the moral self-discipline that you manage to apply. And you'll use those things to determine whether or not this is a good week or a bad week. There will be something or other that you will be drawn to measure yourself by. Something that you will desire to have. Because if you can have that, then you'll know that all is well. But you see that when we believe the gospel, when we really believe it, all that changes. We haven't got to prove ourselves anymore. There's no measure against which we need to to mark ourselves to say all is well. We are liberated. We are set free not to live for the things that we desire, that the sinful flesh desires as a desperate effort to prove ourselves, to make life okay. No, we are free to live for him. To live for what the Spirit desires. To live his way. What a difference it would make if we were really, really sure that this was so. Nothing dull about this Christian life. Nothing pedestrian about believing the gospel and then letting it set you free to live as the Spirit desires for you. Free from the need to prove yourself. Free from the desires of the sinful nature. Free to live for the one who created us. Free to live in step with the Spirit who indwells us. Let me lead us in a prayer that we might believe more fully in these truths.
Uh, Father, we admit that uh, many of us uh, sat here this morning uh, in a sense uh, have believed uh, these truths uh, for many, many years. Uh, We declare them, perhaps we teach them to others. And yet, at another level, we know that they have not uh, taken root nearly as fully and completely uh, as they should have done, as as you want them to. Uh, in our lives. Uh, Lord God, increase our faith, increase our vision of uh, all that Christ has done for us, that we might see more richly uh, what it means to be in Christ. And that this gracious gift to us uh, of forgiven sin, of right standing with you, of the assurance of your love uh, would become for us uh, the the driver uh, to live in ways that are pleasing to you. Uh, And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.